Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey friends, my name is Andre and this is the Tennis and Bagels podcast. Uh, we have been pretty privileged the last few months, I guess, to be able to have the full team together. And here today we got Owen. How are you doing, man? Doing well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. I'm great. And Vansh is there with us again. Yeah, I'm doing great. Yeah, really looking forward to this episode. It's nice. always nice when the three of us are back together. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we we have here a very special guest, like uh, somebody who's here for the first time. Um, he mostly covers the Challenger Tours, which is going to be the talk of today because uh, the new season is coming up. And if you remember Aslan Karatsev and Nikolas Alcaraz, they all had to go through big wins in the challenger tour so we're gonna be touching base on on that today with uh the expert on the challenger tours uh damien kust uh i'm I probably butchered your name so if you want to say your name again <laughs> uh it's fine i mean in poland we usually just say damian kust but yeah, yeah. damien yeah. is fine as well because that's yeah. what that's what english-speaking people are used to but yes hello uh, i actually didn't know that it was going to be the full gang but yeah. <laughs> i'm happy to see you <laughs> see you all yeah sorry i'm i'm, I'm still getting the hang of uh giving uh, all the important details <laughs> i guess uh, but you know you, you know these guys better than you know me so it's probably better than in any case yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah i mean we're, we're uh, usually super prepared here so like you know th- this is like the only time we mess things up i'm kidding we usually <laughs> do a lot of preparation but yeah it's, it's great to have you here yeah and um, yeah, we have prepared a, a few questions and our goal today, I think, is really, as I, as I mentioned, to kind of chat a bit about players who are coming up in the Challenger Tours and just really the experience because it's kind of an underappreciated tour and most of the time just really forgotten. It just feels like the ATP 250s are the really the lower tier tournaments, but there is actually stuff below them and, you know, players are grinding and, and fighting day in, day out and I think up until last week, players were still doing Challenger Tours matches, which is absolutely insane. So, um, so yeah, like, um, Vansh, why don't you start off uh, with uh, a few questions that you have prepared since you're probably the most prepared guy between all of us here? <laughs> no, I'm really not. I just really put put this all uh, together. It just fit in kind of nicely because, you know, I, I, I first want to ask Damien, you know, how, how, how did you become a tennis fan? And, you know, what drew you to the Challenger Tour specifically? And, you know... Uh, you're considered by many on tennis Twitter to be a tennis hipster. So, so just tell us a little, a little bit about that and your origin story and how that came about. Yeah, I love that phrase, tennis hipster. I certainly identify with it for sure. Uh, yeah, well, I became a tennis fan. Uh, just watching some random matches on TV, I think my, my father was a big influence in that. He's definitely not as much of a tennis fan these days as I am, but just having someone to talk to, uh, about tennis and also watching you know, Grand Slam finals was you know, really helpful in the early days. There's been a few very important matches that showed me that this sport is, <laughs> is so entertaining. 
the prime examples I could name is the Australian Open 2012 final between Djokovic and Nadal and then also the Federer del Potro Olympic semifinal. These were like the two, uh, probably the first matches that I watched from start, start to finish. And then it just progressed with every single year. Uh, and as, when it comes to challengers specifically, uh, back in like 2018, I just, I was already like 19, so I could travel by myself and all without any, any issues. And I just figured I wanted to go to a live event. And in Poland, we at the time, we didn't actually have any 250s or something like that. So challengers was the best you could get. <laughs> and I just traveled to Sopot in 2018. Actually, the, that edition was held in, in Gdynia, which is like very nearby, but never mind. And I loved it. I didn't like instantly start watching the Challenger Tour. I remember just following some streams, uh, mostly the, the the matches played by Poles, but I, I didn't really get into it that much instantly. But ne- next year I chose, I traveled to, to Sopot again, then to Szczecin, and I somehow I just figured that, you know, with you know, sort of looking for a way to get into the tennis media or whatever you want to call it, <laughs> I, I just saw that there's really not much content on the challenger tour. Like no one is talking about it. And I figured maybe I can do that. And by you know, by starting to at first it was like a, a weekly recap piece of the challenger tour that I that, that, that I'm still actually writing, but it's like not my uh not my focus and I'm not my most important work right now. But but then it just just my obsession grew stronger, I would say. And with every single week, I began to to love that that tour even even more. And obviously, it's uh, it it was quite a, a shock for me how good these players are because in the even in what commentators or pundits say, you often kind of get the feeling that they uh, treat these players as journeymen, as you know, people who basically cannot play. Like they they think that sub 120 in the rankings there's pretty much i don't know that it's just wild and no one can actually you know no no one actually has good technique or whatever and it 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 was quite a shock for me and i guess i just like hipster stuff i mean something that isn't really uh talked about something that i can you know be a pioneer of sorts i don't know i mean uh an ambassador of, of 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 this you know of the circuit of of sorts i guess i i, I am so uh, you know i like that role i i'm gonna try to keep uh, improving the the content on the challenger tour that i put out and hopefully get more interest in in this circuit that's awesome and um yeah. you know since you know the challenger tour so well better than most what would you say are the main differences between the challenger tour and the acp a lot of the players say that there aren't any. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if if that's exactly true. For the most part, like in terms of the playing quality, I guess it's just consistency. Not necessarily talking of uh, just putting the strokes in the court, but the the way you, the players can just be stay stay focused for I don't know a set, a longer period of time, a longer stretch of games. They can e- they can do that a lot more easily on the ATP tour. Now in challengers, there's a lot more momentum shifts in terms of technique. Really, I mean, every single guy who plays on the challengers or who's good enough has, uh, you know, received years of training. So I, I don't think there's that much of, of a difference. I actually read a, 
uh, a quote from uh, Ramkumar Ramanathan like yesterday, who said that there's basically no difference between the levels. Uh, yeah, that. That's probably a bit of a stretch. <laughs> but I, I mean, uh, when you talk to any player who's, who's on the challenger tour, he's just going to tell you that it doesn't really matter whether the opponent he's playing is ranked 120 or I don't know, 450, that they, they can all play great, but they just cannot really do that every single day. And that's, I guess, the biggest difference that mm. that you can get between ATP tour players and and challengers. I feel like, oh, just kind of like putting in like a little bit of a comment here. Like when I watched uh, challenges at first, and obviously, like as you very well put, like uh, the vast majority of tennis fans go into the sport via the biggest matches, right? So you watched Nadal versus Djokovic in a Grand Slam, and then you watched the Olympics between Roger Federer and Del Potro. And then, like, you kind of, like, worked your way down, I guess, <laughs> to towards to the Challenger Tour. But it, when you go and you watch the highest level of tennis and you go in and watch, like, the, you know, the more, the less elite players, if you will. Like, uh, I feel like it's definitely interesting how many times I have noticed. Like, and I feel like you put this perfectly. Like, the momentum shifts just, like, they happen so much more often. Uh, and it gets frustrating even, like, as... Uh, watching sometimes like when i when i see sometimes it's easy that they would crumble um in the most important game like when they have to close the set i was watching a match then like i was getting really into it like especially this year i was covering a little bit more of a canadian players there's a bunch of them like playing on the challenger tour like day in day out and um other players sometimes like when you watch sometimes they fail to serve for a match and they played like five games in a row like on service that they went like 40 15 for you love and they just failed to act and they got broken, like in the most important of the moments. And I feel like we just say that like maybe mental and not necessarily technical is definitely the thing that actually separates the ATP winners and the challenger winners. For sure. I mean, the mentality is everything here. I think just there, there's really not much difference in terms of technique or what they can produce. They just cannot do that in the most important moments. They cannot do that uh, every single match. And, and and that's probably the, the big difference. But you can get some absolutely uh, stunning challenger matches. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm that's what I've been trying to tell people. <laughs> Not yes. everyone believes it, but but some, you know, so, so, some some you, you might have bad luck, obviously. There's gonna be a lot more matches on the challenger tour that are gonna be a little tough to watch if you're used to you know watching Djokovic and Nadal going at it. But it's it it's really I don't know, I just I guess I just really like seeing so many different players as well mm, uh yeah. I, i'm just not satisfied with the hundreds that are playing on the atp tour i i want to get to know <laughs> another player that's like you know when there when there's an, uh, a new challenger tournament and there's a a guy whom i haven't seen that's my priority that's that's what i want to see uh and i guess that would be actually true for 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 a lot of people on on the atp tour i, I i'm assuming there's going to be a lot of fans who think about it the, the same way Absolutely. Yeah. That intrigue level is always, uh, you know, always gets to the next level when you can, especially when you can be, you know, you can say like, uh, you know, I watched this guy play four or five years ago and I was like an early adopter of, of that player, if you will. I feel like a lot of players who, a lot of people who follow the challenger tour, like yourself, you've been following the progression, you know, just level by level of these players. And it's been, it's probably great for you as a tennis fan. So, you know, just looking at it, from that standpoint, you know, what is the most, 
what do you think is the most fun part of challengers for fans, you know, on site or online? Um, you know, obviously now it's nice that we have ATP free streaming for the challenger events. And so you can go and, you know, just check them out anytime. And there's usually challengers, you know, pretty much every week, but, but how's that fan experience like for you? Lots of matches, I guess. I mean, <laughs> on the ATP tour, you've got like what, 40 or 50 events. And this year we've had 147 challengers. And as Andre said, you know, that they finished on the 19th of December this year. So it's been pretty much, you know, some, sometimes you can just wake up to a tournament in Nur Sultan or, or you know, somewhere in Asia. It, actually, there, there wasn't even any in, there weren't, there weren't any in Australia or Asia this year. Australia is coming back. Asia, I mean, Asia, I'm talking of China, Japan and all. Uh, that, that, that would have been even more extreme. But some days you could, even this year, you could wake up to a tournament in Almaty and then finish the day. Uh, at I don't know at three at three a.m. in the morning for me uh, when I'm, you know an American uh, challenger or just a South American tournament so so that that's really cool for me because there's always tennis to be watched and and when I when I see people talking about how there's no tennis when the, when you know main tour events finish that's that's where I step in and say oh no there there is tennis I actually have to uh, have to stop myself from just you know putting every just commenting on every single tweet like that because people right. would kill me but yeah i think that the, the the fact that you can watch so many matches a day uh this week we've had a like a billion of weeks when there were five tournaments per week uh, in september actually every single week uh, had five of them so it's it's super busy you cannot watch it all it's practically impossible i i, I watched probably like 95% of the finals this year, but right. there's, it's just impossible to watch uh, every single thing on any other day than Sunday, practically. And on Sunday, you still get the first round of qualifying. So because of focusing oh. so much on the finals, I actually missed a lot of good first round qualifying action. So it's basically, you know, it, it, it never sleeps. And that's a, a great thing. Nice. Right. Um, so- something. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Bach. No, no, I was just going to say, because this actually perfect segue into, uh, you know, another question we had is, you know, how do you think it can be better marketed to fans and the media? Because, you know, it's not helpful when you have, for example, the ATP chairman, Andrea Godenzi, I'm sure you probably saw, you know, two weeks ago, he put out this quote saying that, you know, in the challenger tour, you should be able to, you know, break even and pay your costs. And he sort of compared it to a university and said it was like an investment. And it's like, you know, after that, you kind of, move on to the pro tour and then you have an actual job and then he said that he doesn't think it'll be possible to have a sustainable tour at that level because it lacks the interest of the fans and the engagement of the sponsors broadcasters and ticket revenues so you know just wondering what your take was on that and you know what you think you know how you think it can be sort of better marketed to fans and the mainstream media audience so you don't have people going like oh there's no tennis when there's actually you know a lot more tennis going on stuff like that yeah, I mean, it's been really clear for, for years that the ATP doesn't think that challengers can be profitable for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just wish there was an attempt. <laughs> I, I, I just feel like no one really tried. Obviously, it wouldn't really be mainstream. It would still be niche, but it probably doesn't have to be that niche. Uh, you mentioned ticket revenues. That's one I would really disagree with. 
Uh, there's plenty of countries that have insane crowds at challengers. Pretty much everything in South America, Italy, Germany, France, even Poland for the mother has wonderful crowds every time. Actually, I, I haven't seen these stats in a while, but uh, back in 2019, uh, the, like the, the biggest challenger event in terms of uh, how much, how many people went there during the week was one, it was one in France. I can remember which one, but it had 30 K people. Uh, and I mean, that, that, that's a wonderful score that probably some ATP 250s wouldn't really be ashamed of. Uh, obviously in some countries, the, the interest is lower, uh, France, Germany, Italy, South American things are, I mean, th- these are the ones that holds the most events, but ticket revenues, I think they, I think they're for the most part are, are actually kind of profitable for the organizers, but not necessarily for, for the ATP. And I can see that, uh, how could it be better marketed? Uh, I'm going to use that example for like the umpteenth time, <laughs> but I constantly get pissed off when I think about uh, this video that uh, the ATP, the Tennis TV channel on YouTube put out this year about Asan Karatsev, Karatsev's rise. And they like literally started that story uh, from St. Petersburg last year, St. Petersburg, the ATP 250 event where he lost yeah. to Kachanov, I think, in the second round. And uh, like the they that there's some text on on screen and it pretty much makes it seem it says that Karatsev was ranked well outside the top 100 and that he was given a wild card to this and it basically makes uh, you know it makes it seem like uh, that wild card was just a random one for a russian it wasn't random at all it it came because he had this fantastic run in in Czech challengers after the restart he jumped 140 ranking places in 3 weeks so uh, I mean that that just omitting that part in that video, and it's not a, a problem of rights because they uh, I've seen uh, tennis TV using uh, ATP Challenger Tour footage uh, in in their videos a lot. Actually, I think it's uh, legal to use their footage in any any video. Uh, if if what I asked about was I mean I asked about it uh, a couple uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I think that was the the answer. Yeah, so. I'm pretty sure that all the footage that is. ATP that they own and they can use no matter how pretty much like there's obviously like some caveats here and there but honestly the challenger tour I'm pretty sure there will be no objections about using that footage to be honest yeah so I mean it just made very little sense to me because it was a great chance to market the the challenger tour to to the, the general public just mention it say hey there's tennis there and in terms of whether it's just a university for the real job, I mean, th- there are so many different sports in the world and some have this system of like, I don't know, there's 100 professional players and the others are just amateurs. Some like football have uh, millions, millions probably. Yeah, definitely millions of, of professional players worldwide. So, uh, I mean, both systems are, you know, have their own uh have <laughs> have their own uh pluses and minuses but uh, obviously as a fan of challenger tennis i would like more, more players to break even uh it, it would also give them a little less tendon, like uh, incentive to fix which shouldn't really be uh, a reason that we should consider but i mean that that's these financial struggles it's actually also what people tend to like about the challenger tour that the stakes are really high there like you could really see the passion and how much the prize money means to these players, and it's it's so important. And you you usually do the do it for challengers to get to these 
little steps like you know, being ranked about 230 to get into Grand Slam qualifying, being ranked about 110 to get into Grand Slam main draws because that's where the money is. That Just being uh, in these spots can actually let you play a full season. And, and Challengers is not, not too profitable for the players at the moment unless you're winning the events or uh, going far uh, in, in, in a few weeks each year. So I, I would love to see that changed. I don't know if it's ever possible, but I would really be, I, I just want someone to try. I feel like there's just not enough effort put into it. The streaming, as which you mentioned, many people still don't know about it. And I, that's also the fault of, of the marketing uh, that the ATP does, because there's never really like, the, for example, the ATP Challenger Tour uh, Twitter account, it never really puts out the links to uh, to the matches before they happen or even after they happen. I think I've, I saw it, saw them do it like once a month ago, but there's been some, uh, I don't know, Andy Murray played <laughs> Challenger Tour this year, right? That's twice even. So that that's something that a lot of people would tune into. Still a lot of people tuned into it. I think it was like 6K viewers on the on the final he played against Marchenko in Biela, but 6K at at one time, not not in total. But still, I mean that's that that really could have been shared uh, you know, more extensively. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, you know, you put out a piece today um, that sort of broke down the challenger tour this year by the numbers, and you wrote about um, the amount of tournaments that were on each surface. And I was surprised at how many there were on clay. There were 85 tournaments on clay to 58 on hard court. And as we know, um, the main ATP tour um, is predominantly hard court. And I was wondering, um, do you think that breakdown is maybe not ideal for challenger tour players who are looking to break into the ATP eventually? Uh, I mean, the balance used to be different. It's it's pretty much this year that we got this. Uh, I think I also mentioned that in the paragraph that in 2019 and 2020, which is uh that that's the third year in a row when, I, when i'm doing this piece so you know i only have the stats for these three years but it was 41 percent each right. uh each 2019 and 2020 so uh, it's been different this year i think largely due to the south american circuit we've actually had something this year that um hasn't really been done before at least not since when i'm following that uh a couple of events were like just interacted with each other. They did the, the, the Horacio de la Pena, actually the former ATP what number 31, I think, but you know, the, the, you know, you know him. He uh, organized this tour uh, in, in South America. And that's, that was practically the reason why it's so dominant this year, because since like, I can't remember the exact dates, but I think it was September, definitely September, at the end of September when the, Pre, from the end of September up until the, the middle of December, there was a South American challenger every single week. Only one of them was on hard, the last one in Rio de Janeiro. So I think that was the, the reason why the balance was such. Uh, is it ideal? Uh, I don't know. I mean, we've seen a few of these players like uh, Juan Manuel Serundolo or Sebastian Baez who pretty much got their next-gen final spots only because of clay challengers. You know, the, the success rate has been a little iffy. Bias did well. Uh, Serundolo certainly didn't. Bias has a much easier time translating his game to, to faster conditions. 
so it's you know at, at, on the main tour they're gonna be forced to play hardcore. So that that might be the transition might be tough for them. That's why I really wanted both of them to go to Milan because you know they stayed in South America up until uh, the, the 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 week before. So many people were speculating whether they would even go because they had zero uh, indoor hardcore experience. But I guess like, looking at the um, looking into the future, this this experience will actually help them. And yeah, it, they they probably will struggle still. Maybe Ba is not, but I mean, Serendola will have a hard time if his ranking gets to a point where he cannot really play clay challengers all year. Uh, and he just, you know, the, on the main tour, the the clay season is like what four months if you count the the one after Wimbledon as well. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think in in a way though, like um, obviously you put it like in different ways. There's definitely like a, a an aspect of your ranking goes up, and if you if you win, say for example, you win like four challengers um, in a row. Like it, it doesn't have to be enough four weeks in a row, but like you, you, the four challengers that you play, you win. Like it's obvious that you, your ranking will probably even like propulse you to like the top 100, uh, where you'd be able to maybe enter even like make the cutoff for an ATP 250 with a like a more depleted field. So, and the, the this will probably be a, an ATP hardcore um, tournament event. But at the same time, like you mentioned, like um, Serundolo and those guys, like they stayed pretty much um, in their in their continent of origin or even in the, their country of origin. I think, wouldn't, wouldn't you think it's kind of like a little bit of a benefit in terms of uh, the player's to have so many challengers, even if it's on the same surface for them, say, for example, if they never break into the top 100 or 150, um, this, the fact that they get to play only in the one surface maximizes their chances of like winning more often. And also the fact that they play only in the same country minimizes the cost of traveling and, you know, things like that. Like it's probably a little bit more easily manageable. I've seen players. Um, I was tracking a few players before and, um they when they were playing the challenger tour pretty much they uh stayed in north america so that's they they've been touring around chicago and uh, new york and so they barely even went the west coast so that probably means that they could even um drive wherever they wanted to go and that, that definitely would minimize their cost of like living which would make um i'll get i guess like break even a little bit simpler than like traveling to australia and then going back to spain and then moving to Rio de Janeiro and then finishing like within four weeks, you've traveled like in four different continents. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. I mean, bias and that there was still a period this year when South America didn't hold any events mm. It actually had a lot of cancellations and delays because of yeah. COVID as well. And bias, both bias and Serundolo went to Europe. I believe Serundolo actually won all three of his challengers in Europe. Uh, so I mean that they they still had to travel, and there there yeah. are these players who only play American challengers, yes. But in the long run, I think there's just not enough of them. Uh, America, like United States, has been, uh, I believe, in in 2019 they were actually the most pro- prolific t- tournament holder on the challenger tour, and they massively fell down after COVID, uh, both 2020 and 2021. So there there actually hasn't been enough. Uh, North American challengers for a player to well you can still you know get a ranking get a high ranking if you actually win most of them or I don't know four of them as you said but I mean who's gonna do that one or two players yeah. the others if they want to get their rankings to and to a point where they can enter grand slams and all they they probably need to travel. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I yeah, see. That's, that's a pretty good point. Um, I, what I wanted to do was ask you, you know, so if you, what kind of things do you look for when you see an upcoming player, like, for example, breaking through on the Challenger Tour? And, you know, what do you look at in terms of assessing his potential as to how far he can go in the rankings or, you know, what kind of breakthroughs he can make? For example, you've probably seen Carlos Alcaraz much before, you know, a lot of others have. So, like, you know, what what are your what what what, what kind of things do you, do you assess? Like, for example, you know, I mean, obviously Alcaraz is a seems like a different beast just in terms of the way he's progressed. Uh-huh. It's happened so quickly. So, so what do you make of that? Yeah, it definitely happened so quickly. I mean, he's ever since he was like fourteen or thirteen, he's been breaking all the age records. I. I haven't seen him when he was in, hadn't seen him when he was like 13, but even back then people were talking about him and saying that he was going to be, uh, he was going to be huge. And obviously he's fulfilling that. But in terms of uh, what's convinced me when I was looking at him, it's, it's, it's a really tough call usually because so many things can go wrong in a, in the development of a player. Uh, and it's so much easier to predict uh and predict uh, uh, poten- the potential of a player who has a lot of weapons, attacking playstyle, good serve. It's so much easier than actually, I don't know, uh, Paulo Lorenzi or Victor Estrella Burgos, for example. They uh, broke the top 100 after being over 30. And you, you that's how it, it, it sort of works, that you cannot really predict the potential. Like, you, you can guess, but it's it's very hard to predict the potential of players who... Uh, whose you know biggest uh, assets are consistency, great touch, something like that. You mostly look for weapons, and that that's what makes all these like you mentioned the the top fifty list they had, or or just any other rankings or opinions that other players do, uh, that other uh, you know people on Twitter do, or I don't know other other people in the media do. That they, they just they're all in kind of inflated in favor of players who have a lot of weapons, who can be aggressive, who can have, who have a great serve from an early age, who are really developed physically. Well, Alcaraz didn't have a good serve, but other than that, he, he definitely ticked all these boxes. Also mental toughness, I guess that that was one of the big reasons why everyone was so, uh, you know, jumped on the bandwagon so early because he was just, a fortress in terms of in terms of the you know just toughness and how he could still play his game in pretty much every single situation uh and every single scoreline so it, it's it's a tough job and that's why i i am uh, really scared about that that ranking that you mentioned that that top 50 because that like i believe there's going to be some absurdly wrong things there when we when i look back at it in in 5 years hopefully no one is going to remember it you know um you mentioned um how you think mental is a bigger aspect like a bigger difference between the atp and the challenger tour than um technical i was wondering um where do you think physical ranks in that because um as far as i can tell they don't play best of five on the challenger tour right um and i think um at the us open we saw a bunch of really young guys play really well like we saw holger rune take a set off djokovic we saw brooksby take a set off djokovic we saw um alcaraz make a really deep run but um rune and brooksby ended up um sort of cramping and fading physically towards the end of their matches. And even Alcaraz, he ended up uh, withdrawing mid-match. 
And I think that might have had something to do with the two five setters he had just played. And so I was wondering, um, what do you think physically challenger tour players could do better perhaps to get ready for the main tour as they rise in the rankings? We're definitely talking of younger players here. Yeah. So yeah. I believe that, that's also players, that's yeah. also a factor. I, I haven't really you know, been following the lower circuits for years or something. So it's probably this year was actually when I first started thinking about it. But Runa is an excellent example because he was basically cramping in every single match he played, every single free set match he played in the in the early stages of the 2021 season. And then he sort of grew out of it. The Djokovic match was the last time I saw him cramping, probably. Uh, another example would be Jack Draper, who mm-hmm. walk, retired like five times this year, mostly in the um, you know early days of his of, of his 2021 season. And right now, as he's really developed physically, it's not it's not happening so um, that often. So I, I believe that's also the, the, the just the physical growth that a player has to has to go through. It's it's a bit it's a little bit of topic, but uh, when when people someone asked me recently, like why do I think that uh, women's Grand Slam uh, junior champions do better? in their transition to the pros. And I believe that's the, the reason is just basically physical biology. The fact that uh, girls simply grow up earlier than, than, than boys. And when you see a 17 or a 16 year old, or Runa was 18 year old at the U S open, Brooks, was a bit older, of course, but when you, when you see that, that young kids pretty much do so well, there's still, so much growth and just development into their body that that's that is to be done that 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 makes it also very hard to predict and i guess also very hard for them to prepare for for a five setter uh it's gonna get it's just gonna get better with experience what could the challenger tour do with this i mean that the common trend in the tennis world is to stay away from five setters i don't think we could really introduce uh best of five on the challenger tour i don't know if that's if that actually makes sense i guess it's just something that everyone has to learn at some point obviously it, it a lot of the time you see these young, young players struggling even not so young not like runa i don't know uh, someone debuting in a grand slam you see him struggling physically in the fifth set and it's easy to just think that uh, well, he could have been prepared for this. He could have thought that maybe I'm going to play longer matches, just build build up his stamina. But I, I guess it's just simply a completely different effort to actually play a match than to train hard for the same amount of playtime, right? I mean, the, the the stress on the muscles and on your on your brain as well is is so much. Uh, so much more intense that that I don't think you can really be prepared for that. And I I have no idea how the Charger Tour would be would be able to fix it. I guess like um, you touched on an interesting point here that um, it obviously seems like the trend is like completely reversed nowadays. In which that um, in the nineties we've seen actually quite a bunch of um, like eighteen year olds and nineteen year olds like winning. And winning big, not necessarily like Haliton Hewitt, who at 16 year old, like won at 250, which is still pretty impressive. But like uh, when you catch uh, Michael Chang at 17 winning Roland Garros, like it's 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 massive. Um, but obviously it seems that there's a lot of difference in how people train nowadays so that um, Roger Federer can go up to 38 years old and almost win Wimbledon, should have won Wimbledon pretty much. And now Djokovic and Nadal are like well in their 30s and 
pretty much still dominating Nadal aside from like a few unfortunate injuries that and not necessarily anything that has to do with his age pretty much it's just like a chronic um, disease that he has on his foot that pretty much caused him to suffer this long but I guess um, yeah it's an interesting point that you put here like uh, and since we talked about the WTA there's a question here that I find interesting like do you think that the WTA can benefit from having challengers or is there anything that is resembles a challenger? I think that the thing that closely, most closely resembles it would be the WTA 125 that they have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what I had in mind. Yeah, uh, sure. I mean, the, uh, I, I've heard from people who are more into the, WTA, the, the WTA tour that it's uh, a little bit tougher for players outside the WTA tour to break through into it because of that, that, that you, most of these breakthroughs are actually built on uh, a good result on the main tour rather than, you know, hu- a, some huge IDF success. Obviously there are uh, a lot of uh, you know, players you could actually say did it differently. I don't know. Ankelina Karnina is, is an example that came to mind uh, right now. I don't know. I don't know why, but I mean, she won a, a billion of IDFs and now she's, and uh, now she's practically a main tier player. But I mean, uh, I, I believe they could uh, they could implement something like that. It's it's great to just have that organization of of the tour. Uh, as I said, 147 events, so a lot of a lot more playing opportunities. Because when you look at uh, 125k events, it's like what nine per year or something like that. And these uh, these huge ITFs that they have 100k's and all. Uh, there's just so so much uh, so much less tournaments that are actually uh, you know that are actually of the prize money and of the ranking points that are comparable to the challenger tour. Uh, I believe it makes it tougher to to break through, tougher to rack up points, and and they would probably benefit from a, from a system like that as well. Yeah, but do you think that they need though? Like in a sense, as you said, like uh, they. <laughs> The WTA players seem to be a lot, a lot younger and doing doing better, as you mentioned. Um, it, it seems almost not necessarily that much of an issue for the WTA, I guess, since we got like, just look at the pool of players that we have nowadays, like in WTA. Like at any given Grand Slam, you could see like 30 players who have an actual shot at winning that that. that that tournament whereas for the men's tour like it's like a such as low progression that you look at a Tsitsipas and you look at Alcaraz you know like maybe in three or four years he can maybe reach like his first Grand Slam final or like uh, winning Grand Slam or like getting to the top five it's it's something that is so much slower whereas on the WTA that I feel like as you mentioned like oh they they just had a breakthrough in the actual um in the actual tour level tournaments uh, maybe that's the reason why they don't have a system like that, or they never put in the effort to actually try and build one. The one two the 125 might might just be be just enough, I guess, for these players. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Uh, I don't think I know enough about the lower circuits of women's tennis to to really give an answer to this. I I've heard some voices that they would. I mean, they. Uh, I've heard some voices from fans that uh, a system like the Challenger Tour would be beneficial, but I, I really have no, no actual way of confirming that. But you're absolutely right, obviously, that that <laughs> the pool of players that could win a, a big tournament on the women's side is just so much bigger, and there's there's that, uh, you know, that the, just how how often the players in the top ten actually. Know, switch places and and how how often someone new breaks through is breaks through like not 
you know, breaks through in the sense that he, he that she wins uh, a big tournament or you know, gets to the top five is, is just so much more frequent. But yeah, I, I I can see that as a as a good point in this discussion. Although as I as I said, I, I I'm afraid I do not know enough about the topic to to really mm. uh, you know have an opinion there. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, also yeah, in the ATP, sure. it's it's such a big progression sometimes for these young guys to then go and start playing multiple five setters. Because like, you know, best of three and best of five, it's it's kind of a different animal in terms of just physically the output of like being able to reproduce that like seven times, you know? It just seems this seems a lot harder to to expect uh, you know, big grand slam breakthroughs right from the beginning. Whereas I think on the WTA it's possibly a lesser of a transition just because of the you know, the the nature that it's all best of three, I guess. Mm. I guess yeah I was gonna say I think also on the WTA the players tend to um have completely mature games much earlier in their careers like at the US Open Raducanu and Fernandez really didn't have any weaknesses and I think that was yeah. one of the reasons why it was so jarring that Alcaraz also kind of had no weaknesses because there are players many years above him <laughs> who have um who still have holes in their game like we know many of the next gens who have been pretty successful don't have great return games and Alcaraz did it such a such a young age yeah yeah sure that's that's why he started as this uh as this absolute huge prospect and i mean people often forget that uh i'm not i'm not really saying that he's gonna win ron garris 2022 but i mean nadal was like 19 uh i think he turned 19 during the middle of the five french open yeah so so i mean he's still One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. On the route to getting there, I mean, it's, I, I'm not saying he's going to do it. As you said, the, I mean, the, the, the peak of, of a tennis player has actually uh, like just, just completely, the, the ages in which a player, a tennis player peaks have completely changed this year. Uh, this year, the, the, you know, these past few decades, probably not, but I mean, the, these, these last 20 years or so, everyone is, especially as we, as we said on the ATP tour, but I mean, in the women's as well, you don't really get 15 year olds winning Grand Slams anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. a great point. I mean, with the legends we have on tour right now, it seems like it takes more, like a higher level to win a major now than it did in years past, maybe. And um, and yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why it's so impressive that Alcaraz has been so successful at 18, because when you look back at 
Michael Chang, like Andre was mentioning, winning a major at 17. Imagining that happen now, happening now is just crazy because you need the physical yeah. development and you need to not have holes in your game and you need to be so mentally tough. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I'm curious when that's going to happen again uh, on the men's side, if it ever happens, because I think it, we could still be several decades away from that. Yeah, rocket technology as well, right? I mean, it, yeah. it all leads to more grueling rallies, the tennis being more physical. Uh, you know, obviously, you could you could talk about how in the nineties, uh, Wimbledon was so fast that all the rallies were three or five shots, and and there were you know, carpet surfaces. But these are the uh, these are the uh, courts that we could really imagine. You know, a seventeen-year-old player winning something huge because that's where the physicality doesn't matter that much. But in the in these days of slightly slower surfaces, also the homogenization, I guess between between the surfaces which is which is sort of evident uh it's going to be tougher and tougher probably yeah 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 and um really quickly how do you feel about like this trends that the game has taken like do you think the current state of the game is better than it was in the 90s like do you think tennis is moving in a good direction and that these grueling rallies are a good thing um i mean the medicine is also progressing so i guess that's not that's uh, you know the, the health impact of that can be somewhat mitigated mm. uh, in general I love attacking styles I love servant volley I love players going to the net but I think part of why I enjoy it so much is that it's rare I believe if every single match looked like this it would probably somewhat hamper my enjoyment uh, even some of the matches I saw obviously not you know, I, I I haven't really seen that many of uh, that many matches from Wimbledon uh, 19 something but I mean I saw a few of them and and they at some points got a little hard to watch when both players were serving volleying and uh, every single especially when there was someone who served really well and every single point was like you know, serve Mr. Turn the, the Mr. Turn then a serve volley finish I mean I love it when it happens uh, it, when it's a rarity, when it's something fresh in the in the in how the, the dynamics of the matchup are going, but I believe I that is probably the, the 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 current state is probably a lot better for TV for fans, for the players. I guess uh, that there are so many. Uh, I guess that there's not that many random results that you could sort of get on. On faster surfaces, I feel like it's a it's a very common conception that uh, that on grass the, some some matches can just or, or faster indoor hard courts the matches can get a little bit more random with the serves needing tie breaks. But then again, I mean, beat Sampras won Wimbledon <laughs> seven times, so what randomness was there really? Yeah. I I guess so. Now we can get to the more ex- we can get to the really exciting part of this podcast, which is talk about all the players that had success in 2021 and you know what what can we sort of expect from these players in 2022 i mean we saw great runs from uh, I, I guess one guy that i really want to talk about is town greek sport because uh, i mean he won eight challengers this year is that right like that's some yep. kind of a crazy record right like it is not, yes it was six before happen. this year and and talon got it to eight which by the way i think is uh, pretty much a result of the ranking freeze as well it just right. kept him in the, you know, in the in these spots where he actually needed to play challenger events for for a little while longer, and it's a record that might be unattainable, really. Yeah. I mean, he's he's still on a twenty five match win streak in challengers. I think twenty six in 
uh, in, in total because there was also a Davis Cup match. But in, if you're asking about Griezmann, I think he can do just fine on the on the main tour. Uh, I don't want to be disrespectful to to Botic van der Zandschul, but I've always sort of mentioned that uh, I don't think like that that his U.S. Open quarterfinal run, like if you actually swapped the positions between Griezmann and van der Zandschul, I don't know if Griezmann beats Schwartzman, but in the in the form that he was at the end of the season, I think he was just as capable of. Uh, of uh, of go- going to the quarterfinals or to the forefront at the U.S. Open, you know, he ran into Djokovic, so th- there's not really much you could you can do there. Uh, but but this is a guy who clearly has the weapons to compete with the, all these with all these guys on the main tour. Uh, fantastic serve, fantastic forehand, in, and I mean even this year at the start of the season he played in Montpellier, he played in Acapulco, and did very well. And I, I just believe he can he can very easily compete there. Sometimes it's harder to break through to the main tour than to <laughs> you know than to actually stay there. I think I believe a lot of the players who are who are ranked and around 120, 130, if you actually gave them a chance to play the main tour for like eight months, which is probably what Talon is gonna get, because another aspect of his of his run was that he won his first challenger this year in May. So he he pretty much won these eight in seven months right may to may to november would be seven so it's gonna be some time before the points start dropping and and i believe there are a lot of players who if you if you gave them the chance to play the main tour for a prolonged period uh, they can actually be very competitive there and talon is is certainly one of them for me i hope the form hasn't gone away in in any way uh, because the the you know the 25 wins that he got in a row it was ab- absolutely spectacular. Also uh, changing surfaces, uh, indoor hard, uh, outdoor hard, and free on clay. So so it, it also demonstrates that he should be able to do just fine. Honestly, um, something I was so impressed with uh, on Greek sport Greek sports part was um, I watched him play Djokovic at the U.S. Open. And, you know, as we know, Djokovic is just a nightmare opponent to play. He's going to attack all your weaknesses. And he won in straight sets. And I was thinking, something I think about usually is even in the high ranks on the ATP, like for a guy like Rublev, I think he's kind of still multiple steps away from the top of the game. Like he's yet to play a late match in a major, like semifinal or final. And he's also yet to get a really big breakthrough win. And sometimes I think, um, you know, for a challenger tour player, it would be even more difficult because he would be several steps away from the top. Um, and so I was thinking from on the part of Greek sport, it would be kind of hard to have positive takeaways from that U.S. Open match, which was why I was so amazed he he's on this winning streak now. Um, and so do you think for challenger player, challenger tour players, this is something like a mindset they have to deal with or an obstacle they have to get past? I mean, when you're 25 and only breaking through to the top 100, you cannot really be expecting to win slams, I guess. I mean, the, this hasn't really happened. But mm-hmm. I mean, we have guys like Aslan Karatsev who got to a semifinal of a slam. You know, if you if you told me that you know, six months earlier or even a week before the Australian Open, let's be honest, yeah. I would never believe it, right? So he, he he kind of proved that with a with great form and challengers, then some some good signs, I guess, uh, on the main tour. He had that second round of Saint Petersburg that, that we mentioned, also uh, a great campaign in the qualies. But I mean, nothing to indicate that he was capable of such a run. Mm-hmm. But as you as you, as we sort of uh 
I, I guess we sort of mentioned that before that it's so hard to win a major this, <laughs> in this era uh, on the men's side, which you know we have like seven, eight, eight with Medvedev, eight active Grand Slam champions, something like that. So, <laughs> so, so it's just going to be very hard to get from that. Uh, quarterfinal, which Van der Zandhoek did, at the semifinal, which Karatsev did, or the multiple quarterfinals that Rublev had, to get from there to actually winning one is going to be really hard, yes. Because it takes you, you actually have to win against these mammoth, <laughs> unbeatable players, either the old big three or the, you know, what you could call the, the new big three. You're going to have to, you're going to have to actually beat them. And for most players, it's just impossible. Uh, in, in the example of Rublev, I mean, he just really has a very poor matchup against Medvedev and, and Zverev, right? So it's, he need, he really needs to get that sorted out. Um, <laughs> when, you know, that, that's when he can go for a slam. Uh, unless he has a lot of luck and everyone just loses early. But... <laughs> so yeah. would you say that a good progression for a challenger player who actually has um, chances in the in the in, in the ATP and they actually build it up and actually get there? I feel like the their best chances would be obviously the two fifties and a five hundred. Would you would you say it's a it's something that they can do as well? I mean, I guess all examples are individual, but yeah. other than these, other than these early breakthroughs like Alcaraz or Luna, who I believe certainly could be winning bigger titles soon. Uh, maybe, maybe not this, maybe not this year. I mean, I'm talking about 2022, but but maybe uh, a bit later. But it, in terms of most of the players, I guess 250s is what I'm looking at. Yes, the the, the recent. Most of the recent breakthroughs, like Serdolo, Greek Sport. I don't know about Sebastian Baez. I think there might be more, more potential there. But I think every every single example is is just really you know supposed to be looked at individually here. Hmm. So I guess let's talk about Rune. So Rune, you know, he started the year what like outside the top four hundred seventy four, I think. Yeah, and now he's just outside the top hundred. And I guess you know technically he had a top hundred year because he. He finished in, I mean, in the race, he was a lot higher, right? And he finished like in around 70-ish, something like that. So, yeah, you know, like that, yeah. uh, so, so what do we think are his, what do we think about his chances in 2022? Because obviously, clearly he's, I mean, physically, he played, I think, 130 matches since the restart, something like that, which is insane. And we already talked about the cramping and, you know, the physical maturing that he's kind of had to do to to overcome this. But, you know, you know and obviously with the help of, several wild cards that helped him get into a lot of these ATP um, ATP events. But clearly, I think, uh, you know, certainly the potential is there, right, for him to become a... You know, well, of a, course, a I mean, it's easy, it's easy to forget that he's just 18, actually. Yeah, and, and that he, uh, you know, he set this goal for himself to get to the top 100. That's why he played so yeah. much. I don't know if it was wise... He was obviously very salty about not getting there. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he showed it in a few, and I, I can't remember, tweets. I think it was tweets, right? Where yeah, he, he commented uh, on he, the, the Instagram um, saying, like, I guess my ranking jump wasn't enough to get most improved. Most, oh, improved, yeah. and most improved, yes. But there was also a tweet saying that because of the, the ranking freeze, his progress is hampered and that he cannot get to 100. Uh, but I think I, his attitude is actually part of what really sells him to me, like as a player, because I believe in order to be the, you know, 
ever a top player, an elite guy, you actually need to be sort of crazy in that sense to, to have that belief that you can actually be that world number one. Or he has that famous quote where he said that he's going to win more French Opens than Nadal. Like, I, I, I don't doubt that he actually believes that. Like, he, And that's the sort of mentality that can get you there. And he's obviously a, a wonderful talent. I uh, a French Open junior uh, grandson champion as well. Yeah. And I, I remember him in the like early 2020 when he was getting these wild cards and they actually weren't warranted by any results, anything he was showing. And I think this is one of the players for whom the pandemic was actually came at the very right time. This is a very, I, I, I don't know if I, I can swear here, so I'm not going to say the word I just wanted to. Uh, I just wanted to say, but uh, it's obviously not uh, a great thing for me to say, but for, for Rune's progress, it was actually quite perfect because he had all these wildcards locked, uh, locked up for the spring of 2020. Alcaraz, the same pretty much. And after the restart, they just went straight to lower tournaments. Alcaraz went to challengers. Rune had to start from ITFs. And by actually getting the much practice, getting the you know, get, getting to play a lot more professionally than he would losing in the first rounds of ATP 250s or something. He he actually developed his game a lot, uh, yeah. especially in terms of the power. Uh, this is actually, I forgot to mention it when you were asking about what do I look at in terms of the player's potential, but uh, the how they do on different surfaces is definitely also... Yeah. Uh, also, the, one of the keys for sure, and and Runa can uh, can certainly. I mean, grass is such a novelty. I don't really look at it, so it's just mostly mostly hard courts, indoor and clay. I even talked to uh, talked to Runa this year about it, and he 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 was also very uh, very self assured as always. But he he kept saying that I mean that he likes both hard courts and clay courts. Uh, hard because he he can play very close to the baseline, and clay courts because he hits a very heavy ball. Uh, and it's it's a really great combination. Uh, and even even the match against Djokovic in New York, which I, I guess there were just two sets because the sets three and four are, cannot really be talked about in any way because it was just Rune cramping. But but that's little sort of early showing against an all time great was was also very reassuring in terms of his potential. He was on an eighteen ma- eighteen match win streak at that time, I think something yeah. like that, uh, or maybe thirteen. Uh, 13, I think. Yeah. Two challengers and, and the qualies. So that might be 18. Uh, I don't know. It does it doesn't really matter, obviously. But but uh, but anyhow, I mean, yeah, I, I am certainly very big on this guy and, and really expecting him. Maybe not this year, but I would be shocked if he's not uh you know just a full-time main tour player by, by the end of next season. Uh, he he clearly should be a top 100 player. I, I'm not a fan of the ranking freeze. I think I mean, I get what they were trying to achieve in the very beginning, but later when, when there, there were so many events held anyway, it sort of lost its purpose. And I, I just checked that he's 67th in the race. And that's clearly wow. a, a more accurate uh, position than, than the 104th that, that you can see him at in the, in the ATP rankings. Right, yeah. yeah. I, I think I, I watched a little bit of him uh, after the US Open. I watched him in Mets where he, yes. he beat he beat Sonigo. I think that was his best win so far. Um, he beat Sonigo, and then he played a really tight match against PCB. And so I was like, okay, wow, this guy is uh, really could be a mainstay here at the tour, like very quickly, you know. 
Yes, and before this event, no one was actually really sure if Runa is going to play well indoors. And <laughs> I mean, then, then he just came to Mets and, as you said, uh, won four matches because I believe he was standing from the qualities as well, had a fantastic game against uh, Karim Busta, uh, then also won an indoor challenger later, played quite well at the, at the next-gen finals as well. He lost to Alcaraz and... Um, and Nakashima, right? So that's yeah, that's definitely you know not bad losses, and and he's obviously younger than than Nakashima by mm-hmm. like two years or something. Okay. So yeah, I mean, huge potential. One of the guys who could actually win a slam, and you know, if I find <laughs> okay, let's start with the outrageous predictions that are so early. Uh, that they you know that they have pretty much zero ground, but I mean I'm I'm gonna say Holger Rune wins the slam in his career. Okay. Let's go. We'll, mm. we'll timestamp this in the description and retweet it every day so cross references <laughs> for the rest of his career. No, but um, I, I really loved the point you made about how tough athletes kind of have to be crazy and that Rune quote about the French Opens. I mean, I don't think anyone thinks he's going to do it, but it reminded me of what. Djokovic said at the 2006 French Open when he's like, you know, Nadal is the best on clay, but he's beatable. And at the time, everyone made fun of Djokovic. But now look at where he is 15 and a half years later, the only guy to beat Nadal at the French Open twice. So I completely agree with you that having that mindset is almost when, a necessity uh, for a top athlete. When Soderling said uh, after that Nadal match in Rome that it was actually kind of close. Yeah, everyone laughed and then two weeks later no one was, was laughing anymore yeah this yeah. is the kind yeah. of mentality that you need to have because I, I believe so many players just enter the tour with with the you know kind of thinking okay i mean maybe i can get to top 50 that would be a good career an atp title would be nice no runa just wants it all and maybe it's, maybe he's going to flop, but this is the kind of mentality that will yeah. really drive him towards working harder. It might not get him friends. Uh, there are so many fans already that dislike him for his antics. I mean, I don't really care. He's entertaining. Yeah. Uh, when I talked to him, he was very nice as well. But I I, I saw him, you know, oh, there was this, this one homophobia, uh, I don't know how to call it, incident. Uh, also, so so yeah. there's there's some problematic stuff, of course, but he's certainly a, a character. That's, that's for sure. Mm. Yeah, I think it's. Um, I've well, I've been reading uh, the master right now, and we all know about Roger Federer's career, right? But it's it's super easy in in hindsight, like especially like there's many interviews with people that are just like, oh yeah, like as soon as I saw the guy, I was like, this guy's gonna be something, and you always take a few of those as a grain of salt because like yeah of course like you you say that now that he's won 20 grand slams and been like number one for this many weeks but like right now like you said like rune is gonna win his lamb and that alone for yourself is is a crazy take and it's just that much difficult to say like somebody's gonna be something in their careers like no matter how crazy they are i remember the gopalov was saying like he wanted to be number one and that was like his goal he never even got it even close i don't think he's ever even been a top 10 player no Um, no 13 or something like that yeah yeah. so yeah like it's you you have to be crazy obviously you have to be good too like you have to you have to put the balls in and like win matches to be number one there is plenty of crazy people in the world but uh yeah uh, if if you were actually to say like put your put your foot on the ground and, and look at somebody in the challengers world and like say like this person or even like him like a like a lower like a tp player like at this point like um who, who would you say has i guess the best potential to actually be something and when i say be something and it's not like 
because top 20 and like top 50 30 is a good career but like to be something is like a i mean a top three top five player potentially grand slam finalists <laughs> i don't want to answer the same thing but i mean yeah. don't get runa yes yeah uh, that, that that's that's certainly i believe that the biggest talent that we have right now outside of guys like alcaraz because i'm i'm discounting alcaraz because he's obviously gonna be amazing and i mean if he got so far this early we still don't can't really predict it but but i mean everyone would agree right now that it would be a huge shock if he never you know, reached the top 10 or something like that. Runa is one for sure. Uh, it, it's so hard to tell with the other guys because the, there are there are a few names in my head, uh, but but it's so hard to tell the difference between a future top 10 player and a future I don't know, top 50 guy. It, it's yeah. just it's just practically impossible. You, you mentioned Federer and I guess the, the people that were talking about this, they probably thought of uh, his Wimbledon junior uh, junior success. Also, he won the Orange Ball, I think. Uh, but then, from that point forward, there was a point in his career when he actually wasn't even developing that well. Right? It it yeah. actually took him some time. So yep. so it it's just so hard to tell, honestly. And but but if I have to name one guy, I would stick by by what I said about Runa. Yes, uh, discounting Alcaraz, as I said. Uh, but but who who else was there? Like who who is already on the on the main tour? But 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 it's still not there. I mean, I don't think Brooksby has a Grand Slam winning game. It's it's very unique. It will take him far, but but probably not. Uh, I'm, I'm just looking at the, at the rankings right now because most of the most of the guys that come to, into my head are very young. Uh, you know, just far back still, and it is just impossible. I I could make predictions like they can be in the top 100. Uh, Sebastian Baez sort of comes to mind for me as well. I guess that's a guy who should probably have that that sort of potential. But as I said, it's always a lot tougher to predict the ceiling of guys who, you know, aren't necessarily that aggressive. Uh, well, he, he he is, but in his own way. When you when you let him on clay, he can he can dictate the points with the forehand, of course. But but he's not that sort of hot shot as Alcaraz, as Alcaraz is, right? So many people use that comparison to to Diego Schwartzman when talking about Vice. Uh, I mean, uh, he's gonna be. I, I I actually you know feel feel sorry for him because for the. I, I, I'm presuming unless he wins a slam or something for the most of you know, for the majority of his career, he's going to hear that every day that he's like Diego Schwartzman, just because they're small Argentinians and like clay, I guess that's pretty the much baby it. Fed 2.0. Yeah. It's he does seem to, he does seem to do more with his forehand and, Definitely. You, know, uh, you know, attack more with it. Like, you know, I think Diego, Diego can, but it's, it's more out of his comfort zone and he's, uh, you know, yeah. it's, yeah, he, he, he Baez, I watched him a little bit in the next-gen finals. He was taking the ball quite early. He was trying to come forward, finish points. Seemed like he was having a, a decent success rate for a guy who, you know, who hadn't had much indoor hardcourt experience. I thought he was dealing with it, you know, arguably the best out of 
like him and Sarundalo and the others. I, I feel For like sure. It, uh, he only had one indoor hardcore match before this before this event. Uh, right. I believe it was an, it was an ITF some somewhere. I can't remember uh, a loss, obviously. Uh, but he was also great at the US Open, so he he can clearly translate his game from clay well to hardcore. And I think a big part of that is what she said about. Um, about his forehand, that he definitely does more with it than, than, um, for example, Schwartzman does. Yeah. Uh, but then again, if you if you let's you know let's pretend that this comparison is great for a moment. And was Diego Schwartzman an easy player to predict? Like in the sense that he, it no. was this guy that would get to the top ten. Not at all. Like I, yeah. I watched him play the first time against Federer in 2015 in Indian Wells. I, I saw that live, and I was thinking, no way, no way he's not going. There's no way he's going to be a top ten guy, you know. And and then he he obviously he he had he had great results at the end of 2020, which sort of propelled him there. Like in Rome, and reaching the semis of Roland Garros. Obviously, he beat Rafa. He had he beat Team in Roland Garros. So yeah, so I mean, he, I, he I've heard some, there, mm-hmm. but. Uh, I've heard some stories. I, I I wasn't really attending these events back in like 2013 or something, but I've heard some stories from the Polish challengers where Schwarzman yeah. played in Szczecin, I believe, in 2013. Uh, and uh, I, I've heard of some random. Well, I mean, they they are they weren't random at the time, but at this right now you could just call them random Polish players who never actually achieved anything, and they were laughing of Schwartzman's second serve. <laughs> Saying you know, that it's just like a balloon, you can just <laughs> hit through it. And I mean, if they if they knew at the time what Diego Schwartzman was gonna become, but that's sort of the point that I that I made earlier. That for players like that, it's just very hard to tell from from you know from an early age that they're gonna be so good. Uh, so yeah. I don't know if that's even an argument, but it was even even though I don't like that comparison between Bias and Schwartzman, like Schwartzman's success sort of tells me that. I mean that there is there is a possibility for a guy like Bias to go far in this sport. That his physicality doesn't necessarily mean that uh, that he's gonna struggle. And as as you said, the the way he just the way he, the way he played at the next gen finals, also the U.S. Open, was was really reassuring of that as well. Yeah, like yeah. something I'm interested to see what happens in this era is once the big three are completely out of the door. Um, you know, what player who's kind of like David Ferrer-esque is going to end up winning a major? Because there are still guys with big games around, but they don't have the same level of consistency. So I'm quite excited to see like which player who's maybe more of a grinder, has um, fewer weapons or a bit more of a limited game, someone like Brooksby. Will someone like that end up winning a major? Um, and like, where will it happen if it does? You're definitely thinking of a, a repetition of a Carlos Moya or a Thomas Muster here. <laughs> yeah. 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 No. Yeah, I mean, because um, I think, I mean, this is a bit off topic, but I think once uh, Djokovic and Nadal are out, Roland Garros and Wimbledon could become like crapshoots on the men's side a little bit, um, especially Wimbledon, because they're just no grass specialists anymore. Yeah. Yeah. But it is probably yeah. the yeah. only. The yeah. Only I had the only. I had the. Yeah. Yeah. So so many times I see people just saying that Berrettini has no chance to win a slam because he has that hole in his game, that hole in his game. Right. And then I'm just like, look at this year's Wimbledon. He was so close. Like, yeah. Was very close. Like, yeah. If if it wasn't Djokovic in the finals, I don't think there was a player that could stop him there. Yeah. yeah. Medvedev could potentially be a huge grass court player as well, just because of how you know, how flat he plays. He's going to be a nightmare to to play on these lower bouncing courts. But I guess he's not there yet. And the others mm-hmm. just don't really like grass that much. Yeah, grass is going to be very open for sure, unless someone new steps up. But then it's so 
hard for new players even to, to to step up because they have zero grass court experience, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know, I mean, maybe maybe so the British ones. Yeah, maybe yeah. some Brits like Jack Draper, for example. I mean, it's it's a very random shout, but I mean, Brits at least have grass court experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Australians probably, Amer- uh, Americans as well. Other than that, yeah. no one plays on grass in their youth. Yeah. yeah, actually, when you said Berrettini, it kind of reminded me of one other player that I think is forgotten a little bit in 2021 because he had a good um, Roland Garros in 2020. Um, and obviously, we know Massetti, he got to the fourth round of Roland Garros this year, but I remember, um, but also, um, oh yeah, the player that I was that came to my mind was um, Daniel Altemeyer. I, I, he beat Berrettini last year in Roland Garros in straight sets, and then he lost to Crane Busta, I think. And then this year, I, he won a couple of challengers and he, he played well. In, one of the clay court events after Wimbledon. I think he got to a semi there. Umag, right? Uh, what's that? Uh, Umag, 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 yeah, yeah. That was the, that was the tournament, yeah. Uh, and so, so you know, what do we think about his potential? I feel like he can do some damage next year on, on clay and, you know, maybe win an ATP 250 or... Because he's now, I think, ranked at 83 in the world. So... I yeah, like I mean, it, it, it was kind of shocking last year, right? That that yeah. someone, uh, someone outside of the top 100 can do this well at at Ron Garros, and it's great that he finally managed to to get there this year. And it's we're, you know, we're just gonna see him a lot on the on the main tour this year. Also, a very big game, um, one-handed backhand, <laughs> which some yeah. of us like, some of us don't. <laughs> uh, but 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 it's not it's not that, that flashy. I think most yeah, it's mostly not, it's, it's not just flashy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think mostly it's just really consistently powerful as all his game is. Yeah, uh, I guess it could, I, it could be like a new Varenka or whatever. He I actually he he, he points to his head like this. So, uh, uh, I, so he, I think Varenka was actually his idol. Uh, that's uh, what he yeah. said. I think uh, during yeah. that tournament. So yeah, cool. Yeah, well, he Varenka beat Djokovic twice in five sets. So why not? <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess like to to try to like bring things to an end obviously the challenger tour is so vast and so extensive that we could literally just have a podcast about it um which if you're interested let me know (laughs) Uh, but um i guess i i really like this question uh you you don't have to you you don't even need to bring any stats into it just kind of what is your wildest most boldest take for 2022 like forget about the the stat sheets just Pick pick a player and and say Nadal is going to lose to that guy. Level, yeah. It can be any level, uh, challengers, mm-hmm. ATP, WTA, whatever. Yeah, you know, just, just whatever you want. We all have an outrageous take. It's going to age like yeah. milk, but that's fine, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um. Do you have do you have yours? Maybe maybe I can get just you know I'm looking to get some uh, know, fifteen seconds to think about it or something. I mean I, I don't have one for next year, but if it makes you feel any better, I was boldly claiming that Medvedev was going to have beat Djokovic in the Australian Open final this year, and then he just got destroyed. Um, Did you claim that before the event started or uh, yeah. once once they got to the final? I think beforehand oh. I said he was. I I, I was winner. saying the same thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my colleague asked me like who, who is gonna win this. He's like just you know barely a tennis fan. He he watches some big matches, uh, and I remember say just giving him a lecture about why Medvedev is yeah. gonna win this. Yeah, <laughs> and I, then he I, never really arrived. Yeah. I, I no. was so confident, yeah. and then like in the middle of the second set, I was just like, no, this is really really bad. <laughs> And then just 
that aged totally yeah. very, very poorly, I mean, in, even in the middle of the match. Yeah. You guys weren't alone. I mean, the odds makers had Medvedev as a slight favorite. For sure, so, yeah. yeah. I remember so, that. I definitely, I definitely thought it was going to be like a top four setter at the least. So yeah. I was, I was yeah. definitely very impressed. Like, I guess I had a very bold take back in 2020 when there was no tennis anyways. But like I was, I claimed a Federer would come back to win uh, Wimbledon one last time. Uh, I remember listening to that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he definitely had the injuries, which kind of like lingered on for a little longer than I expected they would. But you, I think it was still a pretty bold take considering everything. If, I, if I'm if i going to take one bold take, I'm going to say that Djokovic doesn't win a single slam in 2022. They're all going to uh, go elsewhere. Andre. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This, is gonna, be, this is going to be my bold take. It doesn't I mean, mean mine, that I believe it. I, it's just like a, that gut feeling, you know what I mean? Yeah. So mine was that he wasn't going to finish the year number one, which I don't think is that bold, honestly. I had, I, I have Medvedev finishing the year number one next year. I just feel like, you know, he can make a lot more progress on clay than he did this year because for sure. I, I think a lot of his struggles were mental, for being honest, on clay. Like, he, he didn't play on clay, for sure. Yeah. But the French I, clay definitely was also better for him, right? It, it yeah. just played yeah, more sure. like hard courts. That's true. That's so, true. The conditions really helped him out this year. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that, um, but I, that match against TC Foss was good. Although the underhand serve was. Oh, yeah, that was the, yeah. a low point. For me. Yeah. And, and, you know, grass is going to be tough, but I feel like if he can adjust his return position a little bit, you know, because he sent so far back on grass. And if he can mm-hmm. move up a little bit and take some of those returns early and he just has that option, then I feel like, you know, in that match against her catch, I mean, if that was played the same day, I feel like he would have won it because he was two sets to one up and he was mm-hmm. leading 4 3 in the fourth set. And then you know, then the match was moved the next day and it was on center court and just got, got thrown off a bit. But I feel like he's one, he's definitely has the game to do better on grass than he did this year. And I, and then already on hard court, he's such a beast and he has the best, one of the best return serve combinations yeah. I've ever seen really. So I feel like, and then Djokovic, even though he won three slams this year and got to the final of the fourth, it was still somewhat of a race at the end of the year, you know, with like Indian Wells, it felt like, you know, if I mean, if Medvedev had to have won like everything and Djokovic would have had to flop a little bit, you know, he could have taken that year on the spot. So I feel like with the amount that Djokovic is going to play this year, you know, with like his scheduling, he's going to tailor it down a bit. And now he's already had those records and, you know, he's had seven year and number ones. And if you just go back in history, like after Sampras did his six years, number one, you know, then in 1999, he had a, a big dip. And, you know, same with the big three at points in their stages in their career. So I feel like maybe the time is coming now where, you know, you know, obviously I think Djokovic is still going to be in the top three, probably number two. But I, I think I have Medvedev finishing the year number one. I don't know, even know if that's a really right. bold take, to be honest. I feel like it's not that mm. bold. It'd be bold if you say Tissipas, but... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is possible. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, all right, Damien, that was way more than 15 seconds. What do you have for us? Uh, no, I mean, uh, one, just one thing I wanted to say was that uh, it may be that, you know, his, this year the calendar slam was such a big goal for Djokovic. So let's right. imagine he, he loses at the Australian Open. Then I yes. don't know how motivated he's going to be for the next three slams in a way. Yeah. I mean, maybe to get 21, but after that... Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, uh, but anyhow, yeah, I, I don't know if it's bold, but I'm gonna say that either one of these two is gonna win the French Open next year, and it's gonna wow. be Casper Ruud or Stefano Tsitsipas. Dang, okay. that is pretty. Oh, okay, bold. okay, okay, that's, that's well, bold. I mean, Tsitsipas yeah. is—he was one set away. I think there's, yeah, there's something to that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm never, fine. never a set felt so far away though. But like, still, sure. <laughs> he was yeah. just one set away. Yes. Yeah, I mean, he had an amazing clay season from start to finish. He was, right? he was really good. Casper would be really, really impressive. Yeah. I think nobody would see that coming. I think I mean, it's possible, but just 
the way he performed at the Grand Slams for now is like the only only thing stopping me from <laughs> maybe not saying that Casper Ruud is going to win the French Open, but I think in the in the future he's going to be a contender for it. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And Tsitsipas, yeah, as you said, had a fantastic clay season and I, I, I just really loved how he can hide that weaker back on, on clay. Uh, for <laughs> yeah. example, on the that, return, yeah. Yes, on the return, especially in that final against Rublev in Monte Carlo, he uh, I think he hit all but three of his second serve returns from the forehand because he was oh, just yeah running around it all and yeah. if he can if he can do that and i don't know i mean i mean it, it's very possible i just don't think I mean, there's a lot of question marks about nadal and i would also uh, I, i'm definitely not expecting Djokovic to win a calendar slam or uh, i'm yeah. not sure if i would go as far as andre did but i mean <laughs> i i am expecting him to have a worse season but like anything pretty much anything is a worse season after right. 2021 that Djokovic had so yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing that interests me about Djokovic is I think at this point in time, he's now a bigger favorite at Wimbledon than he is at the Australian Open, even though at the Australian Open, he's been way more dominant over the years. I agree. Yeah. I think he's yeah. a bigger favorite. Yeah. 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 As we said, I mean, there's just no man, not many grass court players right now. And Djokovic yeah. can clearly do extremely well on the surface, yeah. even though his style is not, not really what you usually uh, think of think a grass court player. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I don't necessarily know what that shows about the generation that we are actually seeing right now, but it's it, it might be a cue that grass court prowess is definitely lacking. Not Nothing to take away from Djokovic. You don't win six Wimbledons without being a good grass court player. But at the same time, yeah, like, I mean, Roger Federer, like 37 or 5, uh, making the... Um, Wimbledon final and very nearly winning it, it definitely is interesting, like I guess, like in the grand scheme of things. But yeah, other than that, um, thanks. Uh, now that we finished this challenger podcast by talking about Wimbledon, uh, <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks, Damien, for uh, coming by our podcast. So you're obviously always welcome. Um, can you share like where can people follow you and read your work? Uh, yeah, I mean, you can follow me on Twitter. It's just my, uh, my first name and surname. Uh, I am a freelancer, I guess you could call it. So I am featured on some uh, different websites, like, for example, Last Word in Tennis or uh, Cracked Rockets or right now at Popcorn Tennis, which I think we're all featured at, right? Yep. Uh, yeah. Am I right? Yes. So, so yes. So you can definitely catch me there from, well, not I wanted to say from time to time. <laughs> uh, you can catch me there my pieces or or on a podcast i have on the challenger tour by the way let me let me just you know uh, get that into the air if someone if someone listened to this and wants to learn so much about the challenger tour then, then you can also listen to the podcast mm-hmm. i have just specifically on this on this topic uh yeah but i don't like talking about myself too much so that's where i'm gonna finish at uh yeah thanks for inviting me uh it was a lot of fun yeah we definitely covered uh, so many different topics, not necessarily yeah. related to the Challenger <laughs> Tour, but yeah. I mean, I don't mind that. It was very, uh, it was very interesting, and just the way we sort of, you know, went from uh, a big take about how tennis changed from the nineties to to a random uh, one hundred and fifty ranked player. That was that was something. Yeah, mm. we like to keep it wild and entertaining, like yeah. a yeah. roller coaster ride. Of, of Nobody tennis. knows what to expect. It in the <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, th- thanks for joining us and we'll we'll have to do this again soon. Yeah.
Yep. It was a blast. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah. All right. Thanks guys so much. Uh, see you guys later. And for the listeners, thanks for listening and have a great new year. If this episode comes out soon enough, I think it should be about the 30th or 31st when you'll be listening to this. Um, but yeah, enjoy tennis coming back soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 